It's what we call a real three-hanky crime. Hey, you're listening to the Lodgers Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined, as always, by Kate Redebaum. Hello, everybody. And we're very excited this week to be joined by Jessica Bardsley. Hi. How are you doing? I'm great. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show. Fantastic. It's not often I get to have a conversation about Lynch and Twin Peaks with not one, but two Harvard doctoral candidates. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Harvard in the house. Yes, sorry, sorry. Right. <clears throat> sorry, I meant a conversation between fellow Harvard doctoral graduates, <clears throat> obviously. Harvard. Simon, you can have a Harvard, you can have an honorary Harvard doctorate. I, I have been, I've decided I have the power to grant that, and I'm granting you one right now, honorary. Can you grant them to all of us? And then we can all be done with this horrible thing that is getting a PhD, and it would be great. Oh, man. Uh, so before we discuss anything else, I have to mention the fact that uh, I happen to look at the iTunes feed again. Uh, I, I have this issue where I forget to look at the American iTunes feed versus the Canadian iTunes feed based on what the, sh- the search result turns up. And then I noticed that we had two new reviews on uh, on the iTunes and they were both very, very nice. They were there were a lot of stars, I think, like six stars each. I didn't even know wow. you could do that. Um, wow. So, I mean, that's it was basically all the stars. Uh, they were very nice words, so thank you, uh, kind, g- gentle creatures. Uh, we would love to keep, I mean, personally, I would keep doing it even if I knew everyone hated it and no one was listening, but uh, I know, Kate, you really appreciate uh, words of praise, so. <laughs> I, think you, I think you just hit the nail on the head as to why I'm putting myself through a torturous PhD, and so it's the desperation <laughs> for praise. Um, but no, it totally, uh, the reviews are, were really lovely. And I mean, you know, like this, this is work. I mean, we definitely, Simon and I take time every week to put this together and it's, it just for my own sense of morale, it's very appreciated to know that people like the uh, podcast. So that's great. So this is a big week. We totally forgot that, uh, may the giant be with you is a double episode. And I also completely forgot that these are both Lynch directed episodes we're talking about. Uh, after this, there's only two more of them for the entire rest of the show. So, yes, we are going to be talking about uh, May the Giant Be With You, written by Frost and directed by Lynch, as well as Coma, written by Harley Payton, and once again, directed by Lynch. Uh, there's so much to talk about in these episodes. Uh, we will try not to just uh, list off things that we thought were impressive and hopefully uh, get a little bit more into the nitty gritty. Now, Jessica, uh, what's what's your relationship with uh, with Lynch and Twin Peaks? How how long have uh, how long have you been engaging with this stuff? I saw my first David Lynch film when I was in high school. I saw Mulholland Drive, and nice. I had no idea what I was getting into, <laughs> and I was both like terrified and confused, but also kind of liked it. But um, I think it was it wasn't until I went to college that I then was sort of more curious, and then I saw Eraserhead, and I really loved that, and. Um, and I discovered Twin Peaks, yeah, probably sometime in college and I, you know, watched it. And then since then I rewatched the series, um, once or once or twice, I don't know, but it's funny. It's like, I, I think going back and rewatching, there are things that I really love about it. And then things that I feel a little like disconnected from, I guess, 
Um, or there's, it's like kind of revisiting a past self or something like some part of me that was more of a fanatic at another point and now is kind of interested, but then still, um, you know, maybe this is what a film studies PhD does to you. It's Absolutely. like, <laughs> yes. yeah. it like alienates you from all your interests or something. Um, there, actually, it's funny yeah. that you say that Jessica, cause I was talking to somebody recently about recording the podcast and saying that I, I had like kind of a realization after Simon and I had started this project, which I did not count on, which was basically what you just said, which is that when you go back to watch something for the purposes of something like this podcast, you have to take a kind of slightly different stance on it than you would if you're just watching it as a fan. Right. And so it's been, there's been a bit of a, it, like it, it threatens your relationship to the thing in a kind of a certain kind of way. And I, I realized a bit late that that really is going to affect like what it's like going into the new episodes, which is interesting, yeah. right? Cause I kind of also would be happy to just sort of sit in front of the TV and like, Ooh, and all over the new episode. So this is a very different, <laughs> yeah. uh, this is going to be well, very different. Even like seeing, um, I don't know how you all have been watching them, but I've been watching them through this like Xfinity account I have, and they're all like on, um, and at the beginning, there's actually a little trailer for the new episodes okay. and it's like, um, and it's video, you know, 16, nine <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually it's, I mean, they're very, they're different ones, um, but, you know, they just say like the return and sometimes there's like, um, you know, a kind of landscape. Um, it seems to have a similar sort of feeling, but there's something that feels different because it's also a, you know, video. Yeah. Um, so there are also there are these things that are kind of mark um, the kind of old Twin Peaks. And you can already tell the new Twin Peaks is going to have some very, um, you know, some different aesthetics just based on what it's shot on and yes, yeah. what the time is and stuff like that. Yeah. The 69 thing is a big thing. I hadn't really, I kind of had forgotten about that, but rewatching them all. A, a, I think it's worth pointing out how glad I am that no one has tried to mess with the aspect ratio of the original Twin Peaks, yeah. the way that they've been doing with things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and, you know, X-Files and everything. It's like Twin Peaks was shot in 4.3 and that is how we should watch it. And I am glad that that is what we have. And actually, Jessica, you just put, you reminded me of something I kind of wanted to make mention of um, right now. And maybe if there's people out there in the Twitterverse or whatever who have opinions on this, I'd be interested to hear about this. But for this one, I dug out Olivier and I's like fancy Blu-ray uh, missing pieces Twin Peaks box set that we you know, spent our, you know, hard-earned money on a couple of years ago uh, to get the missing pieces parts of Fire Walk With Me. And I hadn't been watching, I'd just been watching these episodes on Netflix. And I went back and watched the Made the Giant Be With You episode on the Blu-rays. And I am not sure, but I suspect that there is something going on with... Ugh, with Netflix maybe having sort of slightly toned down the color a little bit or like just the way the quality is on Netflix like it's like just it is technically 1080p but because it's streaming it's a little different than what you get on a Blu-ray the colors on the Blu-ray are um, noticeably stronger particularly the red filter that they're you know Twin Peaks infamously use this really strong red filter so everybody's skin has like a kind of orangey reddish cast uh, is much more noticeable on the Blu-rays than it is on Netflix like it's quite a difference actually so Anyway, if, if anybody else has noticed this, I'd be interested to hear what people think about it, but that's enough. <laughs> well, the other thing that's different too, or that I've noticed in rewatching is, um, you know, when you watch the DVDs, you have the log lady before mm -hmm. every episode. Yeah, the and log lady I don't helps. think it's on Netflix and it's also not on the Xfinity that I've been watching. And yeah. it, 
is a different experience. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So yeah. is that how you saw them first with the Log Lady yeah. intros? Because yeah. they were that's not. That's how I first saw them. They were not on TV originally. Those things they were added oh, for. They would. They were added for like a later. Oh God, it, this is easy enough to look up, but they were added for like a later, uh, maybe um, a rerun or something of them on television. I think Lynch went back and shot these. But anyway, mm. so I, I did not watch them with the Log Lady intros the first time around. I don't really have like a relationship to them. But then again, I know some people totally do and like really love the Log Lady intros. So yeah, so you're missing them. When I went back a few years ago and rewatched the series, I didn't watch with the Log Lady intros. So I've sort of had the experience of not not seeing her. It just, it, I mean, it's just like additional content that, you know, makes her more of this really full character. Um, I mean, she's really, she becomes like your guide through the series. Yes. Whereas otherwise she is, um, you know, she's a character who's important, but different than if you are sort of, if every episode is prefaced with her presence. And then, okay, so Simon, I have one more tidbit of information I have to throw in here before we turn to the, you know, hard work of talking about David Lynch for an hour, which is such a tough gig that we have. <laughs> yeah, before, do it. <laughs> before we get to that, I've been saving this story until Jessica was on the podcast. So uh, a year, and a, no, two years ago, uh, for Halloween, I think two, two and a half years ago even, uh, I decided to have a Halloween party at my house and we had a <laughs> Twin Peaks themed Halloween party. And I came up with this idea thinking that like, you know, maybe a few people would kind of get a kick out of it. The response to this like Twin Peaks theme party was kind of amazing because as you might guess, graduate students are not exactly like people who have a ton of time and or energy and or money to like dress up and <laughs> engage in theme parties. But people were super into this. It was amazing. We had such a good like cast of characters turn up. We had, uh, Bobby Briggs, we had Dr. Jacoby, we had at least two log ladies, and then Jessica and I both turned up as the two Audreys, which was really funny. I think it's funny, though, because I think I could have been either an Audrey or a Donna, oh, but I, I think I, I think the way, because I have this curly hair, so... I can't, I think there was sort of like, I, my identity was a little confused, but Donna's identity is a little confused. So I'd like to talk about that today. Right. Yes. <laughs> I, I also, just because I know these guys listen to the podcast and I get such a kick out of this, I will have to say as well, we had a couple turn up who really wanted to be part of like the party and the scene, had never seen the television show and had no idea what was going on. So they made themselves hats that were just mountains. So the two of them together were like twin peaks. I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> But anyway, so I will probably have cause to talk again about the Twin Peaks party down the road. But uh, I thought that was this at least part of Jessica's bona fides for being on this podcast for having participated once in a Twin Peaks party. <laughs> but we'll do it again. Maybe we'll do it when the new season comes back. Uh, anyway, all right. We should probably get down to it because there is, I mean, literally these might be the two episodes that we have the most to say, I think, about any two episodes in the whole show, probably. So. Oh, well, I don't, we'll see about that. Oh, okay. About that. All right. But. Uh, these are certainly big episodes. Uh, you know, we talked a lot in the last episode of the podcast about season uh, season one's finale and how it sort of um, seemed to rush into getting all these plot elements in, which for better or worse. Uh, and then May the Giant Be With You is the total opposite. Opposite, yeah. Um, it's we, we stretch out. We've got a 90 minute basically runtime. Um, I was I was watching the credits and I, I noticed oh it's, they've got the full credit sequence this time that's when I that's when I actually realized how long it was going to be, um, and yes we we open with that very uh, what's the word I'm looking for languorous sequence of uh, Cooper on the floor and the 
uh, the ancient uh, the ancient hotel employee. There's a lot of weird comedy. There's uh, but what there isn't a lot of is you know racing through plot. Uh, the, that pace that I think Ricky was missing in in that last episode is is definitely back. Um, so God, where do we even start? Uh, maybe we should we sh- maybe we should start with uh, the giant and his proclamations. His his uh, clues his clues his, his his three things he's going to say that are actually four things and I know that because I wrote them down. <laughs> uh, like we're it's it seemed it really what I noticed about this episode is that the, the the last few episodes previous didn't have a lot of the um a lot of those uh, as you called them Kate uh, talismanic pro- proclamations uh, and then suddenly yeah. in this episode gives us like eight new ones. <laughs> Well, we definitely get the owls are not what they seem is finally actually pronounced as a thing. Um, I actually, I have to admit, even just starting with this question of like the, the clues or whatever we want to call them of what the giant says, um, there's something really fascinating about the fact that when you, when you start watching season two, this episode particularly, I think, puts... Uh, I don't know. It it belies, I think, the narrative that has developed just over the years for a lot of people who think about Twin Peaks with this idea that season one is great and season two is bad. And you hear that a lot, right? And it's, it really is not true. I mean, and any like, you know, diehard fan of the show kind of knows that, that it's, it isn't until later in the season that things start getting problematic. But so many of the elements of the show that are like really, truly iconic and are part of the, the myth and the legend of Twin Peaks don't start until the second season. I mean, it's a lot of them start right here, right? Like the owls or not what they seem. Um, oh God, I'm going to forget. I can't do them off the top of my head, but I know there are sort of at least four more things. Oh, Meals on Wheels is another one that comes up here that's amazing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Jessica, what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, I had a similar feeling where I agree with you in terms of there's this kind of false idea about where season one ends and season two begins. <laughs> but also, I think in terms of these clues, I mean, something I've been thinking a lot about in rewatching this is Um, I know in an earlier podcast, you guys have talked about the genre of like the mystery or detective genre. Um, But part of what's interesting to me is thinking about how clues and particularly objects take on this kind of um, uh, this other meaning, you know, objects become more mysterious or powerful um, and even, you know, things that aren't objects, even the owls, which aren't what they seem, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, you know, there's the log and, you know, that it communicates and, you know, we see in the second episode that it, it has a message yeah. and, um, but even, you know, with Cooper's ring and trying to understand what does it mean that his ring's gone. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that these, these kind of clues have a way of transforming, um, everyday objects into kind of harbors of significance that are kind of take them out from the sort of mundane, ordinary world. Yeah. And Lynch makes it seem so easy almost, right? The way that he manages to take some totally mundane thing and make it so strange. And it's unbelievable how easily he does it. It's like, it's not easy. It obviously isn't easy. It's work and it's incredible skill, but it feels sort of uncannily like obvious almost how, how easily he does it. But anyway, sorry, Simon, go ahead. Uh, what I found, I think, maybe most noteworthy about these episodes is that the the first season has this relatively uncomplicated scheme where you've got uh, this gaggle of, of small townspeople, most of whom are either good or bad, uh, and they are coming up against this obviously very bad thing. Uh, but then this, I feel like these episodes complicate that a little bit, uh, or and maybe this is where the show starts to complicate it in general, because 
now we because this this especially this first episode seems seems to present okay so there's this other layer of reality but even that layer contains these malevolent forces and these potentially helpful forces uh and then also you you start to have these other sort of supernatural encounters that can't really easily be classified into into good or evil like obviously the meals on wheel sequence which we'll get to later and the, the whole thing with donna and the glasses which i know jessica something you wanted you specifically requested <laughs> you specifically requested this episode for that reason so i don't i don't want to step on your toes there but the this is where, and the show's going to get into trouble with this later. But it's it's starting to introduce these these super these these other elements that are a little bit more ambiguous, which for now is a good look. Yeah. Well, I mean, can, can we talk? Yeah, about I have, I have yeah, the yeah. transformation next on my list too. So let's uh, let's do it. <laughs> Go for it. I mean, it's funny because actually the only thing that stuck out in my head was. Oh, I want to talk about Donna with the glasses. That was like all I, I didn't remember what happened in the episode. I didn't remember any other context, but it stood out to me as this kind of instance that I think we see throughout where, um, again, these objects have a kind of transformative power. And I think for Donna, this becomes a moment where she sort of starts to, um, you know, consciously or not become Laura and it's, you know, she puts on the glasses, she starts smoking, but she's also sitting across from Maddie, who then takes her own glasses and breaks them apart. And, you know, is kind of like, I'm done with this. These, these glasses aren't, you know, they don't represent who I want to be or whatever. Um, but then, you know, we see Donna go visit James in jail and, you know, she's all seductive. The way she talks to him and interacts with him is totally unlike, how she has acted up until that point. You know, I think in the first season, she really is a much more kind of authentic um, and kind of sincere, even kind of innocent person. She wants to understand what happened to her friend. She even feels kind of guilty about, um, you know, kind of stealing her dead friend's boyfriend. <laughs> and, you know, this episode, she you know, is really trying to like seduce James through jail bars. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of like a, a Donna we haven't seen. And even Lucy says it, you know, she sees Donna and is just like, you know, Donna. And, <laughs> and it's a very kind of pronounced character change, but it's interesting because I do think she kind of goes in and out of that. You know, then when we see her again, she does the meals on wheels and goes to the first house. And I think, um, and I think there we see her kind of morph back. So she's kind of testing something out. She's testing out an identity. And I think the glasses become this kind of vehicle for where that kind of begins. I have long had strong opinions about this sequence with Donna and the, the jail sequence. I mean, I think like you, Jessica, it's always stood out in my mind as for me, something that I, I really don't like about this episode. Like for me, it's a, um, again, yeah. maybe a harbinger of where things go later on, where, where character changes are just not grounded in, yeah, I don't know, maybe a, a kind of, um, emotional reality mm -hmm. or something in the same kind of way as a lot of the rest of the show seems to operate in these early, uh, early episodes. And I think rewatching, like watching it again with a maybe a bit more of a critical eye for the podcast now, um, I, I get, I, I think I get more what 
what the writers were sort of trying to do, but it, it still stands out for me how much the ball was dropped around this. I mean, I think for one thing, if we just flash forward a little bit to the next episode where we get um, James and Donna and Maddie singing, and we'll talk about that later, which is an amazing sequence, but you have them singing. I mean, think about how differently these sequences would have worked if that scene had come first, and then you have like uh, mm. the transformation happening afterwards, because as much as there is almost this sort of like supernatural feeling of the kind of glasses uh, and the cigarettes and everything sort of, you know, turning Donna into Laura, I think there is clearly supposed to be kind of a conscious choice on Donna's point part there as well to behave uh, in this very overtly different manner. And I, I, for me, it just feels like something that could have been done a little differently and it would have not stood out in such a sore thumb kind of way. Like it, it ends up reading very, for me, a little silly and it's not helped by like the fact that the, um, like so much, Simon, I think you've commented on this before as well. The show's concepts of sexiness are so like, <laughs> and all over the place. Like Donna's, the, this idea that Donna walks into the, into the uh, sheriff's office wearing like seven layers of clothing and Lucy is like, ooh, and dearie me, like she's so sexy. It's like, what? Like, it's so crazy. But anyway, uh, I don't know, Simon, was that sort of what you were thinking? Well, a little bit. I mean, I think she only thinks it's sexy because she can hear the soundtrack. And it's like, it's, <laughs> right. because remember, it's part <laughs> but, of their world. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. The music is always playing. Yes, indeed. Well, and it has this, like, kind of um, sultry Western vibe. Like, that's where the guitar is playing, right? So it's yeah. this kind of, like, it has this kind of, and I mean, and that happens throughout that entire episode. But in that moment when Donna walks in, it's just like, here she is. <laughs> you know, she could be in like the desert wearing nothing. And it's like, here she is. <laughs> Johnny, Johnny guitar, kind of a uh, Joan Crawford or something. Yeah, indeed. I don't know. I mean, so I, does, that, does the transformation bug you, Simon, or not really? Uh, I like the idea that she experiences this, this profound transformation, but then it just kind of like wears off uh, sort of in between scenes. It's kind of a strange idea mm -hmm. that maybe they didn't think through that well, but there's something about um, how non how non profound the transformation is that actually weirdly <laughs> kind of works for me. Um, that being said, I wanted to talk about you know you were talking about this episode being goofy and holy crap, there are some really goofy ass moments in this episode. Uh, I need to specifically talk about Andy and the board, yeah, <laughs> and how that sequence seems to be about seven minutes long. <laughs> That sequence definitely feels yeah. like that. And then the sequence that happens in the next episode with Andy and the scotch tape at the window, um, both feel like Lynch kind of, uh, I don't know, almost consciously jokingly nodding to the audience about what the audience expects of Lynch almost or something, right? Like just like unnecessary stuff for the sake of it, maybe? I don't know. Right. It I is mean, very gratuitous. Like there's something about it that's very like, um, yeah. I, I agree with that. <laughs> the sequence with the board, it what's what's crazy to me about it, and I think actually the board sequence works for me, yeah. because if it had been half as long, it would have been a scene in like one of the Ernest movies, but <laughs> like literally the same body language and, and pacing and everything. But because it goes on so long and it calls so much attention to itself that like I, I, I literally in my apartment by myself, I was like, what the are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and well, then finally, and right, yeah, and 
And then finally and we get the nose. And, yes, on the blood. Oh. oh, I know. It makes me watching it this time actually, um, and again paying more attention than I normally would to like the timeline of things uh, with Lynch. It, it, it's. I find it surprising how much that sequence ends up calling up a scene in Wild at Heart, which Lynch had shot over that summer, right? Which is the one of the more amazing sequences in Wild at Heart, which is uh, cousin Dale Crispin Glover in the flashback doing the dance with the bugs in his underwear. I, I don't know if anybody else remembers this. Maybe this is just me. But they're, they're very, like, the physicality, this just sort of, like, bizarre, excessive, um, yeah, overt kind of strange physicality that's that's played at the border between comedic and upsetting. Like, with Andy, you almost don't know whether to be worried about him or not. Like, it keeps kind of walking that line of, like, is he mm-hmm. actually hurt? Or is this just supposed to be funny? Or what? I, yeah. Right, and well, he's got the body language of a cartoon character that just ran into a rock wall. What's interesting to me is that this kind of confusion is even built into the other characters responding to him, which actually, I mean, it's interesting because even going back to, you know, this kind of the Donna transformation, it's similar that James is also confused and kind of, yeah. you know, it, it to me it becomes part of why he, you know, I mean, I guess not to reveal much, you know, but we see it a little bit at the end like that you see him in that song sequence kind of making eyes at Maddie yeah. and that there is this kind of sense that um, he's like falling out of love with her. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, these kind of responses we as an audience have, it's interesting how they're kind of built into how other characters are responding to each other. Um, whether it's, you know, also confused or um, there are also obviously instances where that, doesn't register but i think these are kind of interesting instances where um the kind of disorientation we feel is like also mimicked in the the actual kind of goings on yeah. between the characters yeah yeah i wanted to because you just reminded me i feel like i didn't actually say what i meant earlier in terms of this uh trying to explain what i was talking about with the transformation with donna um i had read a review of, of something talking about the finale in the previous uh season and somebody makes a comment about this really short moment where you get james looking at maddie and donna sees james looking at maddie and it's it really is like just a few seconds long um but i think this is sort of what i mean when i say i'm not sure they had fully kind of given that like the space they needed to give it in order for then the viewer to register at you know many months later realistically when this was on television the idea that this is donna's response to that and that that this is donna very consciously trying to ape laura which as we've already talked about has been like a common theme on the show right people both um owning Laura's image and sort of like claiming ownership to it and, and claiming a relationship with her. And then here Donna sort of tries to try it on literally. Uh, and I think it's a great theme and a great like sort of aspect of the show. I just wish that maybe it had been brought out a little bit more. I think it connects to, to I mean, maybe another character we can talk about is Audrey, who also kind of goes on her own. Um, she sort of tries on a different hat. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, she's trying to sort of be, um, you know, Agent Cooper's uh, helper. So, you know, she's kind of pretending to be a sort of detective on her own kind of ends up in over her head. <laughs> yes. And yeah. In I think we should mention probably one of the more risque scenes to air <laughs> on broadcast television that year in which she has to fend off her father's advances. That uh, scene is amazing. <laughs> I had totally forgotten about this. I yeah, it is I remember at the time when I saw it the first time around being quite shocked 
by it, like as as a scene, like being quite unsettled. Uh, this idea of her having to fend off her father with the mask and being hidden, and and even this idea of watching it and thinking, how does he not realize it's his daughter? And like there being a whole other level of a kind of. Um, yeah, this this like the ways in which people cannot see something that is so much in front of them, which like just for yeah whatever I won't say it, but there's there's things here that matter that we can come back to later when we know more about what how the show develops. But anyway, there's some amazing stuff going on in that sequence. Absolutely. The other sort of aspect that I wanted to mention, there's actually a couple things I wanted to mention. First of all, just a quick shout out to like in the. I believe it's at the uh, in in the first episode we get the the piano recital dinner oh, sequence. Amazing, uh, yeah. Which I mean, it's <laughs> yes. amazing for a few reasons. First of all, I kept thinking to myself, "Man, Donna's sister that we've never seen before looks really familiar." <laughs> and it's, you do, and it's, it's Alicia, Alicia Witt. Witt. Yeah, uh, <laughs> with, I, I that that took me to, it took me a quick IMDb to figure that one out. And we have to we have to talk about Ray Wise again because. He is just turned up to 11 in this episode. I, I'm sure I've said this once before, but he, to me, is like one of the quintessentially like Lynchian performers of, of this show. And it's, it's, it's impossible for me to think about Twin Peaks without him. Uh, his, in particular, his, his rendition of, of that uh, folk tune. Is, uh, is, yes, is, yeah. uh, is something that, that's better than any special effect. And there's some wonky <laughs> special effects going on in, the, in particularly this episode. It's true. Well, so there's like there's a bunch of different scenes with Leland that we should separate out because the Mersey Dote scene comes earlier, which is the one where he mm -hmm. his hair goes gray, uh, and there's some amazing oh, stuff happening. Right, yeah, yeah there, there's some amazing yeah. stuff happening there too because you have Sarah and Maddie talking about this dream, and then later at the end of the scene, Maddie sees uh, what may or may not be blood on the rug and like melts down. But you know, Leland is singing in the background and his hair has gone white, which is a, 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 so a, such an unsettling sequence. And then there's the dinner table sequence later, which is. So good. But yeah, but go, go ahead, Jessica. I also feel like one way to think about these is just is tracking the different kind of musical numbers <laughs> throughout this this one episode. Um, or just thinking about the music in general, because it's true that like the whole, you know, especially in the beginning in the hospital, you know, you have this this guitar, the sultry desert Western guitar <laughs> that kind of transforms the series of hospital visits from whoever to whoever um, into this uh, kind of Western, I guess. And but then right then there's Leland singing when his hair turns white. There's Leland singing at the dinner, performing, um, and then having this this meltdown and passing out. The song with James and Donna and Maddie. We also, like, throughout the first season, we also have, you know, like, Julie Cruz singing. Like, this kind of way that music becomes so much a part of the kind of ambiance and atmosphere of the film and its mood. But it's strange how these very different kind of styles in the end all kind of create this 
they seem part of the same universe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like there's something where it's like, I feel like we go from like a kind of Elvisy doo-wop to like, um, you know, this kind of Western theme song, but it all sort of seems part of this dreamy soap opera universe. Yeah. <laughs> I think what really helps is like, if you ever get a chance to listen to the full Twin Peaks archives of music, there's like nine hours of music. What really unites a lot of it is it's not so much the styles, it's the fact that, that so many of the instruments are just keyboards or synthesized. Like, there there aren't that many live instruments on the soundtrack, um, and they're all and they're all produced pretty much the same way. I know they're all produced exactly the same way. They all like it, it has the feeling of of like sort of like an orchestra in a box or something, and you're you're getting different presets out and they all they, they all kind of feel like they were packaged together even though the styles are, are very different you don't ever hear any music that's out of character even if what you're hearing is like tonally or genre wise completely opposed to what we just got in the previous scene so it's kind of a neat trick yeah it maps i think nicely onto this idea that even in even within one scene in the show you can have such dramatic shifts in tone and if people like lynch are at the head of it 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 not only um works you know like it not only works period it works really really well and like we can come back and i have maybe some examples of that that we can talk about but i wanted to add for the uh the music stuff that there's just an interesting kind of tidbit which is that prior to the show returning this episode which aired september 30th 1989 i think um on september 12th the album had come out which was called floating into the night which is like the julie cruz songs Mm -hmm. where they had written uh lyrics i know they'd written uh jessica just made like a hugging motion because i (laughs) I agree. I feel that it's like this music is you want to hug it. It's everything about the show. It's it's so affecting. It's so beautiful. Exactly right. And the the Julie Cruz vocals are so much attuned to the show. Right. Like and and even at this point, I, I suppose we should point out that I think at this point in Twin Peaks, like Julie Cruz has not made. Have we heard her singing on the show? Can anybody mm-hmm. remember? Yeah, she she sings especially. Um, yeah, in the first season, she sings um, at she, the she's at the roadhouse. The roadhouse. Yeah. yeah, she sings at the roadhouse. Oh, that and is then in the first of, one. Okay. Yeah, and you do kind of hear her. I think at a few other moments. Okay. Um, I couldn't remember yeah. if she didn't turn up until later or not. So that's why. Yeah. I said no, that, she's but. and I think she's physically there on the stage at the roadhouse. I think yeah. so as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah. but yeah, so you have the album that comes out at this point, which I found just to be sort of an interesting. Um, point to note that you then get uh, in the next episode uh, Donna and James and Maddie kind of singing one of the songs that is on the album so there's an interesting kind of tension there Uh, I I still haven't finished the book so I don't want to talk about it really at this point but that you also over the summer got uh, The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer which became a New York Times bestseller uh, and is written you know like from the perspective of Laura and just so people can follow the narrative here like you in the book, you're given a lot of backstory about Laura's life and a lot of kind of details about her, this relationship, if you want to call it that, with Bob that's been there in her life the whole time. But you don't, it's all just clues that sort of point towards who could or could not be the killer. It's very much like the show, right? I mean, you, you end up later reading the book knowing who the killer is. It reads a very particular way, but it, it doesn't um, tell you anything. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there as backstory as well. Um, yeah. One more piece of backstory, since we're talking about music, the second season of Twin Peaks coincided with, on the very same network, the first season of Cop Rock. <laughs> so I knew you were let's not that forget in there. that. And hey, hey, let's be careful out there. 
Let's be careful out there. While we're talking about maybe the more kind of reception stuff around the show, I wanted to get in here as well. The fact that there was uh, like a bit of a boost in the ratings for this episode too, presumably because audiences were suspecting or hoping that Laura's killer would be revealed in the opening episode. And so you get, you get some of the higher numbers that you've gotten on the show in a while. I think there was like 19 million viewers and then when laura's killer is not revealed you get a pretty big drop the following yeah. episode it goes down to 14 million which the previous season you might they might go down by kind of like 1.5 to 2 million per episode this was like 5 million almost so that was definitely one of the bigger more noticeable right. drops that they'd had unfortunately I, well it's interesting because it's like you um I, this is where i'm having trouble separating the yeah i think this is the end of the first episode um in the second season where you kind of do know Laura's killer, but you also kind of don't. Well, by you the know, way, we don't. Sort of... We were not. We're, this is this is spoiler free. Hey, so don't just because we no, didn't no, tell no, you. Okay, I know, good, I know, good, I know. Okay. I know, no, I'm not going. <laughs> no worries. I couldn't but remember you, if we. Told I, you I that. guess what I'm trying to say is that um, you have an image of someone who is presented as the killer. You know, like oh, the end of that first. Yeah. Oh, Bob. Yes, what, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. That so you sense. have this kind of. So I guess like I'm. I'm trying to sort of go back to imagining watching this for the first time, and it's like you have this kind of this figure, this Bob Bob person who is actually very violently depicted as murdering Laura in the train car. You know, you have this kind of horrible like the. You have this sort of strobe light and and Bob sort of taking something in his hands and and smashing her body it's like it's very horrifying actually it's that final that final sequence of the first episode is i think probably the closest in tone that we've gotten so far on the show to what ends up happening in something like fire walk with me later which we'll come back to but um and in fact i think you get even some of those shots are reused in fire walk with me but that final sequence is I mean, again, again, it's amazing. Like even, even leading up to before you get to these flashes of the train car, the stuff in the hospital, like this very Lynchian, um, trademark of the flashing, the flickering, flickering lights in the hospital, the hospitals deserted, uh, these long empty hallways. And all of a sudden the camera starts racing down the hallway and Laura and Ronette's hands start raising up. I mean, it is still to this day watching that episode. I can't help but get goosebumps. Um, mm -hmm. and I think the other important thing about that, uh, bit at the end is, you also get more than more than a kind of the, this clear shot of Bob killing her. You also get an implication of Laura's role in this being less clear cut than simply victim, right? I mean, she she is she is almost she's she almost is sort of this horrifying figure herself. Like you get this her screaming and this the shot of the blood on her face with the teeth bared, and it is a, a remarkable image. Again, um, I don't know. Yeah, Simon, do you have thoughts about that scene? Well, oh man, I the the thing that you really value about Lynch directing these episodes besides the pacing is just no one else can quite get those ruptures that he does the where like the, where the, he he just he tears a hole right in the fabric of this cozy uh cocoony universe and just goes to this other space and that that last section of of may the giant be with you it's almost like a snuff film like mm -hmm. it it feels wrong i think it feels wronger than anything we've seen up to this point which is saying something and like 
and in other scenes like when Renette sees the the composite of uh, of Bob and it sort of it comes slowly into focus and then like the uh, what as always the lights flicker and everything just just goes to hell uh, no one else can really seem to muster like the people other directors do bring things to the table but I don't think any of the others can really rival sequences like that for just primal terror well, I think there's something important, too, here that we can keep talking about later, because, again, it's important for Firewalk With Me, but this idea that I think it matters that, you know, Lynch and Frost would have been, no doubt, aware that audiences were expecting to be told who killed Laura when this episode came back to television. And not only do you not get who killed Laura, plus the kind of endless joke of the pace being slowed down and down and down and down, and, like, we may never know who killed Laura, not only do you get that, you also get, yeah, again, this sort of more and more making murky of what Laura's relationship, like, to this world is and to even her own death. I mean, you get Jacoby earlier in the episode saying... uh this thing about um, how, you know, Laura had made peace with the idea of, of dying, and it wasn't that she committed suicide, but it was that she sort of put herself in a position to be killed, which, I mean, to, to be honest, like, if we're, if we, this is a longer conversation, maybe, but this idea of, of even saying something like that, I think, opens up a really difficult, like, political can of worms. I mean, think, talking about rape and sexual abuse and victimhood and trauma and all of these things. And from my perspective, I believe that, that Lynch and the show are absolutely on the right side of that argument and are very much figuring out ways to deal with this idea of of what it means for the fact that a victim does have agency and that that agency isn't always so clear-cut and isn't always going to put them on the right side of some, like, innocence uh, banner. I mean, I think that, I think it is really important that the show is doing this kind of work, but I also think that there is almost a level of... I mean, sadism is too strong, but there is a very strong pushback from people like Lynch here of, you just want to see who killed Laura. Well, instead, we're going to sub- subject you to these horrifying sequences of her being killed. I mean, those are those are two... You're expecting one thing, and you're given something very different. And I think I think that maybe has something to do with why the numbers dropped so much the following <laughs> episode. Well, it is actually really interesting. I mean, I think this question of Laura's agency or sort of her, you know, did she want to die? Like, this... I think it's really interesting because I think, too, like as we learn more about Laura and even as we see Donna and Audrey, um, you know, pursue their own paths, um, to me, it also becomes a lot about um, thinking about girlhood, I guess, and like kind of, you know, teenage adolescent, you know, this kind of moment of sort of like becoming a kind of sexual person as a woman and then also... Um, you know, within the context of this kind of like, um, small town, I'm not sure that it qualifies as a suburban (laughs) town. Maybe it does. Um, but I think there's, there's something about it that, um, it almost seems like this, um, desire for sex and violence and drugs and all this becomes a way of trying to show agency. And I think that's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I think that's also part of what um, we see kind of Laura or Donna trying to trying yeah, out. It's like, is, you know, it's a, it's a kind of way of trying to think about herself and her own desires and identity and all that. Um, well, and also the weird question that we haven't addressed yet, which totally plays into what, and, and uh, there's no answer to it. So it's not like we have to talk about it a lot, but the fact that Audrey, um, her like, escapade up to one-eyed jacks there's a very weird structuring absent question there which is the idea that 
you know, if Audrey wasn't confronted with her father, would she have just slept with somebody else? Right. Like it's, you know, like this question that the show very much puts out there and then completely backs away from like Audrey manages to spend a good number of a good amount of time in this place without it becoming a problem, which is uh, (laughs) interesting in and of itself. But yeah, but it totally, yeah. mm Oh, go ahead. Or like, is she just sleeping with people between scenes and we're not hearing about it? Like, indeed, yeah. It's totally a possibility. Uh, This is also all complicated by the fact and only made possible by the fact that these 17 and 18 year olds are all played by 25 year olds. (laughs) Oh, I feel like, are they 25? I feel like they're 30. I'm like, I feel like they're older than I am. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You know who's interesting though, and who really doesn't fit this bill. And it's, it's actually a really fascinating comparison is, um, Machen Amick as Shelly, who is actually the youngest Mm. of the actresses. Mm. She was, she was very young. She she, she has like an interesting backstory. She emancipated from her parents when she was like 15 to become an actress. And I, and I, you'd have to look up what, how actually old she was, but I, really think she was quite young when the show started Ooh, she filming. pulled a laura dern yes exactly and uh it's interesting because she again is is sort of the youngest but in a certain kind of way she's coded as very much not dealing with what you're talking about jessica which is this idea of the kind of middle class like almost upper middle class uh girls of you're right it's not suburban isn't the right way to put it but the, but a certain kind of class in the town who are in this space of yeah, like testing out sexuality, trying on sexuality as a way to kind of like mark entry to adulthood in a certain kind of way. And of course, Laura is a very different and interesting case because, I mean, as people at this point would have been tracking with the diary of Laura Palmer, like she started having sex much younger and it was, again, not by her choice. But anyway, so there is a, that's an interesting thing. But then Shelley gets married at like 17 out of high school. And for her, that kind of relationship to sex is on the one hand, like, there is still a very, like, clear kind of physical physicality and passion there with Bobby, but on the other hand is very much marked as a sort of prison of domesticity and, like, banality mm-hmm. and this idea that marriage is, yeah, like, is really, sex is not something that she is is fascinated by. For her, it's, it's yeah, there's a, there's a tainted kind of prison quality to it. Anyway. I, I wanted to specifically mention, actually, um, Shelley and Bobby because they have one of my favorite sort of performance moments. In oh, either of these episodes, the hair? the hair, yes, the hair, it's so good. <laughs> yeah, the, the little hair tufting is such a cute, cute moment, and like it feels of all the like coupledom of all the couples on Twin Peaks, they seem like one of the most authentic because they like that's a stupid couple thing that a couple would do, <laughs> is like go up to each other and tuft each other. Like the like, it doesn't make any sense, but it's totally like a thing that a, a real dumb couple would do. <laughs> Um, I find I always really like that sequence because I find the moment at the end where Bobby's walking out of the out of the hospital room and he says uh, it's something like, yeah, I guess I I guess I love you. And then he repeats it and he says, I guess I do love you. I find it really affecting. I Dana Ashbrook, I, like, he gets me, Matt. Like, every time. I'm like, there's something about this, this again, this way that he's able to move between the kind of goofier registers of, like, what Lynch is asking him to do and then all of a sudden find this, like, real kind of sentiment below it, I find impressive. Um, and I think we, since we probably want to maybe make sure we have time to move on to the ne- next episode, I wanted to say a couple of my favorite sequences that we haven't talked about yet from this first episode. This may be, like, it's in the running for my favorite scene in Twin Peaks, period, which is maybe going to surprise people because it's not, like, it doesn't have any real of the main characters in it. But the sequence with uh, Major Briggs and Bobby at the diner, Mm -hmm. where Major Briggs recounts his dream to Bobby. His vision. His vision. I, I find that sequence heartbreaking. Like, it brings me to tears 
every time. I love it. I mean, I, I think I could talk about that sequence alone for 20 minutes, but I kind of want to hear what other people think about it before I <laughs> say anything else about it. I think I don't have the relationship to no. Bobby that you have. So I think I'd be more interested in hearing what you have to say about it. I always just think he seems like such a, like, weaselly piece of shit. But I, <laughs> I mean, but I actually do really like that scene with his dad. And it's, to me, it's actually one of the few times that, to me, he seems like a real person because Bobby ends up crying. Yeah. And it's actually hard for me to, like, I, I feel like at first it's hard to tell if it's sincere or not, actually. And then I think you see the sort of realness come to the surface. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Interesting. I think it's, I don't know. Simon, what, what do you, do you like that scene or do you find it a bit goofy? Oh, no, I love that sequence. It's so good. I, Major Briggs is such a great character. And I, I, he's one of the ones that I totally forgotten about for some reason and have just been really enjoying on rewatch. Um, yeah. But I think that, you know, it's something that is threaded really neatly in these episodes and maybe sort of when that sequence starts is a good example of um, is how Lynch threads like comedy and tragedy. Um, in, it, it, and it comes out more in certain sequences, like when uh, Big Ed is recounting the the the, yes. the ballad, the ballad of him and Nadine, which is really <laughs> just—it's so sad and so and so like in such a like masculine, uh, sad cowboy way, and it's really affecting. And then Miguel Ferrer, bless his heart. <laughs> is just losing it the whole time uh that's one of my i mean albert is one of my very very favorite characters and that sequence is a is a good example of why but even there's one of the there's one of the later sequences at the at the hayward household when uh i believe it's when ray wise is just absolutely losing his mind and there's a shot of donna and she's just like her mouth is wide open and you earnestly cannot tell if she's crying or laughing. <laughs> mm. Yes, that is a great moment. And that, it reads as, yeah, just perfect performance. Like, so much so that you almost wonder if it was, uh, like, a, an outtake or something that he catches, like, Lynch mm -hmm. catches her just it, off guard. Yeah, I, I think that's a great scene, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I, the sequence with Nadine, with the recounting of Ed and Nadine's story and cutting to um, Albert Rosenfeld or Albert Rosenflower slash Roserfeld, as Andy calls him multiple times <laughs> episode um cutting back and forth to him i think that's a, gr a perfect example of lynch taking a scene that on paper could play out you know pretty standardly as just two characters talking to each other like two talking heads recounting a story and lynch manages to find this amazing other set of tensions in it to really amp up both sides of it like the fact that you cut to rosenfeld laughing and every time it makes me laugh harder and then you cut back to ed and it's like the crash down into this real kind of pathos of the of their relationship it, it just creates a, an effect where both sides of that end up feeling stronger or something. And Lynch is so good at doing that. Um, yeah. I could, I wanted to just say two more things about the Bobby and the major Briggs sequence. Cause I, I have never noticed them until going back and watching it more closely again this time. Like I'm always so overwhelmed by the emotion of the scene that I've never noticed this, but it, and it just speaks again to the quality and like the interest of Lynch's direction. So in that sequence where you have major Briggs uh, framed speaking to Bobby in the diner booth, 
behind him, like as Briggs is narrating the stream, behind him you have uh, four bodies that you can see each of them going backwards in the booths. And even though there's sounds, like muted sounds of the diner coming from off camera, these bodies behind him are all perfectly still. And like leading up to them, you see them moving. And then in the sequence afterwards from the side, you immediately see the bodies moving again. But in this moment, they're all perfectly still behind behind Briggs. And it creates, again, just these subtle... Yeah, like f affective senses of it of it being a dream, right? Of it crossing over into this dream space, which you know shares something with what's happening in the giant sequence at the beginning, and even the waiter, right? This waiter, it's so strange and so unusual that you're like, this cannot be real. Like, is Cooper dreaming this? I mean, this sort of strange, yeah, perforated space between dream and death and life and all of these things in the episode. Anyway, I okay. Yeah, on this note, <laughs> I do also kind of want to say one more thing. Or I think there's a similar kind of dream, this dreamlike quality to that performance with James yeah, and Donna absolutely. and Maddie. And it, I like, to me, that's actually my favorite scene of this episode. Because it's, it's actually in it, the next episode, by the way. Oh, it is? Yeah, yeah, it's at the end of the next episode. It's the final, but, really? but you can talk about it. Go ahead. Like there isn't, oh there's God, a lot less I'm happening like, totally... in that episode. So we can mix it in with this one. Oh my <laughs> God. Good. Okay. But I mean, it, to me, it has this similar kind of like otherworldly dreamy quality. I mean, it, it, it's the music, but it's also just the way that they all look at each other and how just through these very subtle gazes, you get this whole story of, of, of these relationships changing and... Anyway, so I totally didn't know that that was the second. I, I, they're like totally mushed together in my mind. That's fine. We, we, we have to start talking about the second episode considering okay, uh, great. How, how late <laughs> we are. Anyway, uh, so we need to talk about the Meals on Wheels sequence for one specific yes. reason, which is that, and again, this is another sequence that I had completely forgotten about. Uh, I actually don't really know if I like that sequence or not. Like, I mean, I don't know how to feel about that sequence. I, I don't know what it does or why it's there. But the main thing that absolutely, like, and, and maybe, like, TV viewers at the time, I guess, probably would not have, have been noticing this. I don't think a lot of them would know a lot about Lynch or his affect or whatever. But that kid looking exactly and talking exactly like David Lynch freaked me the hell out. But, I mean, you know that it's his son, right, Simon? Oh, I did not know that. Oh, yes. It's... I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. Okay. Wow. Well, that makes sense. Well, yeah. Then there you yes. go. That's, uh, that's, that's Austin Lynch, who um, grew up what? to... He's not... I don't think he main, Like, I don't think he does filmmaking as his daily job anymore, but he, he grew up to work in film. And the funny thing, Simon, Austin Lynch made the making of documentary about Terrence Malick's The New World. It's like Austin Lynch directed that. If I'm not totally wrong, like, I, I wish my husband was here to back me up because he's the real nerd about this stuff, but I swear Austin Lynch directed that, <laughs> that documentary. But yes, it is definitely mini David Lynch, and it is so creepy and so uncanny and so, so perfect. It's crazy. I, no. This is what this is what we're like. I feel like a loser for not knowing who was <laughs> the, the name of the child that was in one scene of a television well, series. If it makes you feel better, I didn't know that, and I didn't feel like a loser. <laughs> Anyway, that sequence, it, it's, and actually now that I know that it stars Young Lynch, maybe it makes more sense because it doesn't feel like it, it meaningfully connects to anything around it, uh, which maybe it doesn't have to. Maybe, maybe it can just be a cool, weird, eerie sequence on its own. But again, again, I feel like this is like one of those portends of stuff that'll come later that won't be so effective. And I feel bad saying that in a Lynch directed episode. 
it's a kind of circuitous way of introducing Mr. Smith, right? <laughs> I mean, that's like ultimately the purpose it serves is, oh, go next door. But there's also easier ways to have done that. So it is this kind of roundabout way of introducing this other character. But I, I mean, I appreciate it. It's so strange, though, that I don't kind of mind its presence. You know, the the creamed corn and it's there and then it's in his hands and then it's not even in his hands. Like that whole thing is just, it's very strange. Now I'm and just, I'm just trying to imagine Lynch directing his own son on how to hold cream corn, right? Like, <laughs> just, son, just make sure. No, I can't do it. Anyway. <laughs> oh, the kid is so great. And also there's a the thing about the tuxedo, which is maybe, you know, like this reference to Leland inexplicably wearing a tuxedo at the dinner party or like early in the previous episode. I mean, there's something about men in tuxedos in Twin Peaks, right. but the Meals on Wheels sequence, I, I'm a fan of it. It doesn't, for me, it's not something that kind of is, is too unusual or too out of the blue or whatever, but it, it definitely is at that register of maybe something like the sequence with Andy, where you get 20 minutes of Andy, you know, hobbling around it, it. It is definitely pushing on that level of expectation of like, what are we doing in this space? But I, I find that with the meals on wheel sequence, it's so unsettling. Like it's so creepy that it, it ends up just working for the, the effective quality of how it ends up playing into the show. There is definitely some stuff that we're starting to see the beginnings of in these episodes, which is this question of if the show is no longer about the drive of simply re revealing steps mm -hmm. towards Laura's killer, then what is going to be the thing that, that structures and, and moves the show forward, right? And, I, and again, at this point, I don't think that it's a problem, but I think you're going to start seeing it being more of a problem <laughs> later right. on. Well, that, and I feel like that question, um, I mean, something else that to me feels connected to that question is, um, also agent Cooper's kind of, um, ideas about the world. <laughs> and, um, I don't know if you guys have talked about this in other episodes, but you know, his interest in Tibet, his, his kind of, um, uh, I guess, philosophical interests mm -hmm. um, that that really do sort of make him a character who's open to, you know, listening to the giant who appears, you know, before him and takes his ring and all these things. But it, I feel like this kind of animistic or mystical quality of his thinking, um, which sometimes seems connected to Buddhism and then other times seems to be his own kind of strange invention. <laughs> um, I think this kind of way of looking at the world also becomes, you know, a kind of important question for the show in terms of understanding how um, things are connected and how, um, how the plot moves forward. Yes. Yeah. Well, you have the interesting line from the giant, right? In the early, in the first episode where the giant says, uh, I forget exactly. He says something like, don't try to understand everything all at once or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it almost mm -hmm. reads as a kind of, um, a, a warning again to the audience like, like you know hey, the, cool it folks yeah exactly like <laughs> chill out a little bit like we'll we'll get there you know maybe remember to see everything else that's happening here and, and not just this idea of focusing on laura and you know i mean it's interesting because it's it's clear that it's a battle that that you know they will lose right like lynch and frost will lose that battle and they will have to reveal laura's killer in 
I think seven episodes or whatever from where we are now. But you know, it's they are still f- fighting the good fight at this point and and trying to kind of say um, there are so many other things about this show that are not just about Laura. And I think you know, Coop is even a, a beautiful example of that. I mean, I, I we didn't I didn't get to say this when we talked about that episode at the beginning, the um, scene at the beginning of the first episode. But there is something so I find it it really affecting the moment where Coop has been shot and he's dealing with this you know the world's most decrepit waiter and the waiter has kind of left finally at some point and Coop is on the floor and you know Lynch gives him you know a, a couple of minutes of screen time to sit there and imagine what it will be like to die I mean to, to sort of say out loud like you know all things considered it I thought it would be more it, it would be worse to be shot and to be dying and as long but as long as I can keep the fear from my mind I can handle it and you know it's the, again this philosophical moment of of time and space to reflect on things that you know are not that's not a thing you see on television very often um certainly and I think it's there it speaks again to the quality of the show like what makes it such an unusual kind of space for thought even not just television mm-hmm. watching yeah something else that we haven't talked about really is it ends up seeming less important to me, but I'm curious what you guys think about it. This whole sort of thing with the mill burning down and Josie has run away or gone somewhere we don't know. Um, Catherine's missing. That whole kind of... Actual plot yeah, stuff. Actual yeah, actual plot. I mean, it's interesting because it's like, it's, a, it's an element that never really drew my interest, but then there's so much of it that it feels like, okay, well, this thing has to be meaningful somehow or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, thinking about the other things that are important aside from Laura's death. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what you guys. Well, I know that when I talk to other people and I ask them what they love about twin peaks, the first thing they say is all the political machinations about the mill. <laughs> that's the, that's the first thing they say every time. <laughs> Yeah. Josie, Josie, Catherine Martell plot lines up at the top of everybody's list. Um, But it's like, are we just supposed to like, is this just kind of background noise or like, what, what is it? I I mean, I think there's, that's a good question. I think there's, I think a, it ends up standing in for a lot of the more obvious references to kind of soap opera plots, right? Like, for example, we haven't even Mm -hmm. mentioned it yet, but this episode, the second episode is called Coma, which is a joke about how often everybody's going in and out of comas. Um, And and like the the mill ends up being kind of the same way, right? Like people scamming to get each other's money and uh, this idea that like you, it's already by the time, I think it's in this, this second episode, by the time you get to the second episode there's an extended scene that kind of references how little most of this is making sense at this point of like the triple and double crosses where you have Jerry and Ben Horn sitting there talking about, well, which book do we burn? And right. you, get, you get like a ten, ten minute discussion about it and then at the end they're like, I don't know, neither one? Like they can't even, yeah. you know, like there isn't even any forward motion about it. I find that quite So they funny. end up I, pulling out marshmallows instead? Exactly. But so that's maybe one answer to your question Jessica about like what do those mills things get you and I think they get you both like I mean Richard Beamer is is pretty consistently amazing as Ben Horn but these sequences in particular get you some amazing moments with uh Jerry Jerry Horn the guy who plays Jerry Horn and I should know his name off the top of my head I'm embarrassed I don't but the guy who plays Jerry Horn is another one of those examples of people who really get how to work with Lynch and how to just follow you know, these bizarre extremes of what Lynch is asking for, like from an actor. I mean, I think he really gets it and he really sells some of those scenes in an amazing way. And his clothing, his clothing is amazing. I don't, we know, we haven't (laughs) talked about it yet, but Jerry Horn's clothing is unbelievable. Like all of the buttons and the badges. It's uh, amazing. It's remarkable to me that 
Jerry manages to spend every second of his screen time either eating something indescribable <laughs> or fondling a tall woman. <laughs> That's very true. Uh, yes, he is delightful, really. You know, as much well, as a, like as much, as much as a corporate like pimp, uh, I don't know, whatever we whatever other bad things he's up to can be. I, I guess. mean, the I other the other I guess more obvious thing, which I think. Us looking back at like we've all seen it and we're rewatching it, but I remember the first time I watched it, you know, Ben Horn seemed like a real suspect, <laughs> you know, and part of it was because also, you know, his implication and these other kind of shady dealings. And Audrey at this point is even wondering, I think for someone who's still watching this, you know, part of Audrey's investigation, I think becomes, did my father yes. kill Laura? Yeah. And, and it's, yeah. he was absolutely like, he, he is a major player in this question. I think the show is very much like Ben Horn possibly killed Laura. Absolutely viewers thinking that yes right so i think that like you know the i mean that doesn't necessarily answer this question about the mill but it doesn't you know it's not a good you know character reference <laughs> in terms of you know his his uh, past dealings i guess but i think that you know that's definitely part of you know especially that you know scene where you know Audrey almost has sex with her father. I think it really transforms how she thinks about him and then inspires her. Um, I can't remember the character's name, but the guy who works at Horn's department store. Em Emery, Emery. Right. Yeah. So he is like, um, you know, laying upside down, tied up. And, you know, Audrey comes in and puts the cord around his neck and is like, I want to know, was Laura here? Was Ronette here? Like, and I feel like really what she's trying to find out is like, is there evidence to, to suggest that this place had something to do with their death? Well, there's, al there's always been, I think even from the beginning, I think in some of the early episodes, you get a hint of Audrey being very already concerned that her father had um, a more than friendly relationship with, with Laura Palmer from the beginning. So that, that's been on the books for a while. My thinking about that sequence with the Emery tied upside down is like, did my own private Idaho take from that? Or like, was that taking from even cowgirls get the blues or like, there's definitely something in the early nineties about this, like really epic kind of, uh, you know, girls dressed up as cowgirls and like ropes and vacuum cleaners and cleaning things. Anyway. Yes. That's just, that's one of those things. <laughs> I mean, Kate, well, it's, it's every man's dream. <laughs> clearly, clearly that's what's happening. Uh, yeah. my favorite thing about Ben Horn in these episodes is that like in between, all the scheming and the trying to have sex with his daughter and the like the many things that he does you know give him credit he does take 30 seconds to call the police department and let them know his daughter's missing <laughs> seriously yeah, 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 finally finally people notice Audrey like, has been maybe taken. maybe two days she's been gone like whatever he says he's like hmm. that his ostensibly yeah. like 16 to 18 year old daughter has been missing for 48 hours just maybe Maybe it's, I mean, he, he's like, he's got a glass of wine there. It's not clear if he's upset or not. It's also not clear if he's actually drinking it. Like, uh, anyway, I just, I love that scene. Oh, Ben Horn. He's so great. Richard Bieber is great as Ben Horn. He's amazing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think if I have other things I wanted to say specifically about, uh, oh, you know, there was one other, there was one, I think, other really remarkable kind of stylistic moment in uh, the second episode that I wanted to point out, which is the scene early on where you get 
Coop and Sheriff Truman going to visit Ronette in the hospital. And you get first that great bit with the turning of the uh, stools, like this awkward encounter with having to redo the stools in front of this girl in the coma. And it's like such a perfect Lynch moment. But uh, there's that. But then towards the end of that, I think you get another one of these really iconic moments from Twin Peaks, which is the image of uh, this sketch of Bob coming into focus in front of Ronette and Ronette freaking out and, and moving around in the bed. And to this day, I still find it a really remarkable thing. At the end of that sequence, as Ronette is kind of seizing in the bed, uh, I think Coop says, you know, are you are you back in the train car? Because she's saying over and over again, train, train, train. He says, are you in the train car? And the lights in the room cut out for a second. And you hear a sound that is almost like it's building up to the sound that was the sound Bob makes at the end of the previous episode, this like manipulated kind of guttural scream thing. And you get almost a hint of it in this other. And then the scene cuts. It's like you don't even have time for your brain to register it as something that's actually happening, like whether this is a flashback or whether the lights have literally gone out in the hospital room or what's happening. And then it's over. And there's just I think that's an amazing thing. Uh, we we uh, we sh- we should be just about wrapping up. There are two things I wanted to address, though. Uh, the first of which is the very final shot of these two episodes, which I cannot believe we have not discussed yet. Which is uh, Bob's slow crawl over the couch. Oh, so good. Yeah, that's what I. Yes, <laughs> that's what you meant earlier. Yeah. Toward Maddie. Toward yeah. Maddie, right? Yeah. yeah. Which is one of honestly one of the scariest images of anything that I can recall in any media and certainly it's on this terrifying. show to date just what a shot that is it's this, <laughs> it's the stillness of that image and how long it takes bob to get to you that always mm. gets me and that like i can't imagine being a tv viewer at the time in 1990 and not just being totally scandalized by that and wanting to watch every single second that followed but you know i'm also <laughs> Not like Normcore 1990 America, so I don't I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> that's such an amazing shot. It is an amazing shot. Well, and I think that Maddie's character, I mean, she's interesting because it's like, I mean, kind of like Laura's mother. So Laura's mother has a vision of Bob, and Maddie also has this vision of Bob. Maddie also sees that stain on the yeah. carpet. And so there is this question of like, why, why are they seeing these things? And why, um, why are these characters having this kind of Bob encounter that other people don't seem to be having? Well, they're, and they're also both, I mean, Sarah, it's maybe a slightly different question, but, but both of them end up getting painted. They are, they are two of the more passive or almost absent characters on the show. Like Maddie does have certainly lines and things to do, but you really don't have a sense of like what Maddie wants out of these scenarios in any kind of way compared to people like Donna and Audrey. She's, she's just not very present. Really her role ends up becoming more and more the kind of like, yeah, this, this, this thing that is she's pursued by Bob, right? Like this sort of terrifying, she's sort of responding like reactive to this world, but she's not really present, which is a very interesting, like, maybe flip side or, or connect or something to Laura on the other side of that. Right. So I, I don't know. There's some interesting stuff there for sure. I find it perpetually fascinating. We haven't talked about this at all yet. And maybe we can talk about it in a future episode, but the ways in which all of these episodes so far hint at a very complex relationship between Sarah and Leland Palmer. That is, that is like, you don't really ever know what's going on with them. It's always just very short little moments. So that's again, why we haven't really focused on it, but there is clearly some deep weird stuff 
stuff between the two of them. And it's very unsettling. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, especially Sarah. I mean, she's basically always almost crying when we encounter her. You know, she's screaming. She's crying. Even at the dinner when Leland yep. starts... Um, you know, singing, she's like kind of horrified and she's sort of the first one who's like, something's wrong. And, you know, even when she like sees his hair for the first time, she's just like, you know, all of her encounters with him, I feel like she is horrified. Yes. And (laughs) it's, yeah. And I, and I think you're right, Jessica. I think it's interesting too, that that never ends up feeling like something worth noticing, but it's so clearly there. It's, it's so weird. Like even in the earlier scene, what season, when you get, uh, Sarah yelling at Leland, when he jumps onto Laura's casket, Sarah yells at him, don't ruin this too. And like, you never know what that is in reference to. And then that's just sort of, it it evaporates. But, um, Mm -hmm. anyway, all, all things we can talk about later, but Yeah. yeah. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you, Jessica, is that you mentioned on this rewatch having uh, a little bit different a, a critical experience watching these episodes i i'm wondering what, what were you struggling the most with uh on rewatch that's a good question um i don't think it's anything in particular i think part of it's having like you know gone through this journey and and i think maybe some of it is sort of what kate and i were discussing in the beginning of this sort of kind of revisiting a past self or sort of feeling like, um, like it's, you know, it's kind of like listening to, um, music you once listened to really intensely for a period of time. And then Mm -hmm. you kind of go back to it, but it still reminds you of that period in your life or something. It doesn't quite feel like something you're, you're in right now. And so I guess that that's to me is where, how I feel about it, I guess. Okay. Um, So what you're saying is you're the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, maybe. I mean, yeah, I think that is. I, I am the problem. Maybe. Twin Peaks is absolved. There's nothing wrong with Twin Peaks. Everything is perfect. Um, I have no complaints. Um, so, so, Jessica, are we going to have you back on and, like, maybe say 10 to 13 episodes and you're going to have the same attitude about this being a perfect show? I'll be like, this is perfect. No, but I'm, I will say I am interested to see the new episodes and to see if that feeling changes because it's also like you know that is something new that's a new experience absolutely um i don't know i'm gonna think more about this though because it i do think there are certain things that do feel dated about the show you know and i think some of that has to do with basic things like race and representation and thinking about the fact that really this is like a very white world um you know the there's Josie's character, but it, I feel like it's a very Orientalist kind of character. Um, and there are things, yeah, there are things that I think um, seem increasingly kind of apparent to me that weren't things that I thought about when I watched it. And maybe that's being young. Maybe that's, I don't know, right. you know, and I don't know to what extent those things are, you know, ref- like really necessarily integral to what the film it, or what the, series is doing but um i don't know there are things that i think about now yeah so yeah i mean it it is interesting to think about um like i uh, this is I've, i'm just thinking about this as I'm, a, I'm i'm literally just about to record a, another podcast on the same subject but i was watching the new king kong movie i know this sounds random but like that movie is so casually diverse it was not a priority of studios at the time whether television or film 
and it certainly is uh it is interesting to to, to revisit that now and uh, and and also in the context of Lynch in general because I know that he uh he has been uh criticized on these grounds possibly rightly uh yeah. on on the subject of diversity and that's something we can get into uh in the future I'm sure but uh Jesus, we've gone long. So <laughs> can I say one more thing about yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, do it. Do it. <laughs> Just one more thing. Well, I think it is really complicated because it's like you know, I think um, one of the questions I would have for like Lynch's kind of approach to horror, I guess, um, is you know, how does it? Um, what would that look like when the the bodies aren't white, you know, like yeah. sort of wondering and what problems would that rate? Cause you know, I, I think this is where part of me thinks like, you know, maybe this is a sort of specific kind of investigation about a kind of white, um, I don't know, rural suburban world and, um, you know, what lives in that world. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, narrowing and in, like yeah. one's focus in that particular way. But I think, um, I feel like it's, it's not intentional, but I do think that it, in some ways it makes more sense as that, but I still think there are other ways to, um, to, you know, it's like s someone like Lucy, like her character could be anyone, yeah. you know, like, so yeah. I think there are things like that, 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 that maybe the casual diversity could be meaningful, but I also think that like, you know, I'm not sure how David Lynch's um, approach to horror um, would would translate, and what yeah, what problems would that bring? I wanted I to because there's an interesting Simon and I actually recorded a podcast about this once upon a time, which was talking about Wild at Heart, and there's a, a an example of something like that in Wild at Heart, where you have a character who's sort of uh, I don't think he even has a name, but uh, an African American actor plays this character, and Nicolas Cage like encounters him at an event early in the film and due to some backstory you never really get or maybe you do I don't remember but Nicolas Cage like beats this guy to death basically on screen and is sent off to jail for it and it's it's a really strikingly unsettling moment maybe for the fact that there aren't so many african-american actors in lynch's films and so like that's an interesting maybe i don't have like a, a, strict, a strict opinion on that but i think it plays into what you're talking about there jessica this question of how it works to sort of integrate people into this white universe where anyway so it's complicated i would add as well though i do think that there is um, I, I'm not sure that it makes sense to hold Twin Peaks up necessarily to a standard of what is going on now in Hollywood, where there is an expectation of a kind of like more diverse thing. Because again, in 1989 and 1990 television, it would have been a very different thing. And I will say, I do still think that Lynch is doing something impressive at the time, which is that he is very aware of the fact that this, um, community is set in a space, which is, um, an important space for Native American communities and the fact that you do have Native American actors populating spaces in the background. There is later we have a character where uh, a law representative, like a law clerk is played by a Native American woman, very easily could have just been a white actress. But like, you know, Lynch does, like there is at least some attention to this kind of thing. And there have, I've been paying attention, there have been a handful of uh, African American actors in the show so far. There was a um, someone on Hank's parole board. There was a doctor early on. So not to d defend the show as like magical, but I don't think it's absolutely horrible either so it's somewhere in the middle maybe yeah. yeah yeah no i agree about not holding it to today's standards i think it's um it's something i'm curious about when we see new episodes exactly like exactly. what's it gonna look like yeah. and 
I'm really curious. Me, me too. Absolutely. Me too. I feel like we end every podcast with that. I'm just like, gee, what that's what's that going to be like? <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. Is there anywhere? Uh, are, is do you have anything to plug? Do you have anything uh, you'd like our listeners to hear about? You're making a you... face that tells me that you're not sure. Jessica's an amazing filmmaker, but I don't know if she uh, promotes herself on Twitter or Facebook or anything. Uh, <laughs> Maybe not. It's okay if I, you don't. I don't have Twitter. I'm on Instagram. <laughs> You're welcome to follow me. Uh, I'm also a filmmaker. Jessica, what's your what's your handle on Instagram? Um, it's my full name, Jessica Bardsley, and then an underscore. All right. And uh, I'm on the Twitters at hollow minds but i i must once again caution everyone that i mostly just yell at you to be a socialist kate you're on twitter <laughs> at cinnamon yes c-i-n-e-m-e-n-t and that's just about it for us please like review rate uh, share share all the things share uh the podcast uh we do it for gratis so you know do what you can to help spread the word and that'll be enough for us and uh, thank y'all so much for listening we'll be back to discuss the next couple episodes next week thank you for listening Was that okay? I'm I'm now going to have all this like um afterwards anxiety where I'm going to be like what the f- did I say? <laughs> <laughs>